If you have your Bibles with you this morning, uh, I'm going to ask you to turn in the Old Testament to the book of Deuteronomy, the 12th chapter. If you don't have a Bible, there should be one there in the pew rack in front of you. And once you've found Deuteronomy chapter 12, I'm going to ask you to stand as we honor God's Word by hearing it read aloud. Deuteronomy chapter 12, beginning in verse 1, this is the word of the Lord. These are the decrees and laws you must be careful to follow in the land that the Lord, the God of your fathers, has given you to possess as long as you live in the land. Destroy completely all the places on the high mountains and on the hills and under every spreading tree where the nations you are dispossessing worship their gods. Break down their altars. Smash their sacred stones and burn their Asherah poles in the fire. Cut down the idols of their gods and wipe out their names from those places. You must not worship the Lord your God in their way, but you are to seek the place the Lord your God will choose from among all your tribes to put his name there for his dwelling. To that place you must go. There bring your burnt offerings and sacrifices, your tithes and special gifts, what you have vowed to give and your free will offerings and the firstborn of your herds and flocks. There in the presence of the Lord your God, you and your family shall eat and shall rejoice in everything you have put your hand to because the Lord your God has blessed you. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you once again for time together in your word. As always, Lord, we thank you that you have given your word to us and through it you have spoken truth. We pray now that as we talk once more about your word, your law, and obedience to it, living by it, we pray the blessing of your spirit to to enable us to do those things which we cannot do in and of our own strength. Open our ears to hear your truth as you speak it to us. By the power of your spirit, change and transform our lives. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. This morning we move into the next major portion of the book of Deuteronomy, verses uh, chapters 12 through 26. It's a, a large section, and it covers the law of God to which Moses has been referring, the statutes, the decrees, up until this point. Over the course of the last two weeks, we have finished looking and studying chapter 11. And there were a range of emotions and a range of reactions for each of us as we looked at that chapter. I hope that there was gratitude as we so clearly saw the character of God and that our God is for us. I hope that there was encouragement in your heart as you and I together saw that our God is on our side. He's for us. He wants us to make it. We should probably have been humbled and maybe even a little ashamed when we realize that too often we think thoughts other than this about our great and awesome God. But the evidence of his favor on us, that God wants to bless us, it's seen in the law that he has spoken to his people. Law that awed God's people. We remember hearing back in Deuteronomy chapter 4 verse 7. Moses says, what other nation is so great as to have their gods near them the way the Lord our God is near us whenever we pray to him? And what other nation is so great as to have such righteous decrees 
and laws, as this body of laws I am setting before you today. God's law is awesome. It's a blessing. It's through obedience to the law, our obedience, right now, in this world, that God blesses his people. He calls us to prosper and to thrive, to have peace and hope in our lives right now. Well, God, who knows all things, knows how important it is that you and I live a life of obedience. So he goes out of his way to make sure that we know what he already knows that we must obey. How does he do it? This is what we've seen. He repeats himself. Because no matter what you believe about your mind and your capacity, oh, you just have to tell me something once. God knows otherwise. God knows that in order to assimilate truth and live by truth, we need to hear it over and over and over again. So what does God do? He repeats himself. Obey, 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 obey. Over and over, that's what God says. He also knows that we're visual people. We need images. And so that's what God gives us to remind us the importance of living in his word. And so he says here, tie my words as symbols on your foreheads and on your hands. Write my word on the door frames of your houses and on your gates. Visual reminders to us of the importance of living God's word. That it should control our thoughts tied here. That it should control our deeds tied here on our hands. God also knows that if we're going to thrive and prosper, be joyful and peaceful, that his word must have preeminence in every area of our lives. And so what does he do? God addresses every pattern, every rhythm of the lives that we live. And he says, talk about the word, my word, when you sit at home, when you walk along the road, when you lie down, when you get up. What kind of transformation, what kind of transformation might come to our lives and to our culture through us, if God's people, God's people, that's us, if we interjected his word into our every conversation, in every rhythm or pattern of our life. See, we think this is hyperbole. Well, God, you don't really mean every area of our lives. Well, yeah, he does. We think that's too much of God's word, but he doesn't think so. We think surely there must be places in our lives where the word of God doesn't belong. Well, if the Word of God doesn't belong there and the truth of it, then probably we don't belong in that place either. This is not hyperbole. This is reality for God and for we, as us as His people. Because He's on our side and He wants us to make it. And so the choice confronts each of us, obey or disobey. And so we looked at the key phrase, the key verses in the whole book of Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy 11, verses 26 and 27. See, I'm setting before you today a blessing and a curse. Blessing if you obey the commands of the Lord, a curse if you disobey those commands. So it's really important, really important for God to establish in the hearts of his people, through the preaching of Moses, the importance of obedience and the blessing of obedience because... They're getting ready to hear a lot of laws, chapter 12 through 26. All is the law of God. Fifteen chapters of it. You know, social laws, personal laws, civil laws, family law, ceremonial law, they're all mixed up together. Some of those laws God's people may understand. Some of those laws God's people may not understand. Some of those laws God's people may like. Other of those laws God's people may not like. You know, God's people may like the the, the social law that ensures that they're treated well by everyone. 
and that their property is protected. God, I like that law. But they may not like the law and God's interference of his law in their lives in their unhappy marriage and doing what they want to do. So if Moses didn't establish ahead of time, if you and I don't establish ahead of time the importance of obeying all of God's laws, then what's going to happen? We will embrace those laws that we like, the laws that please us, the laws that benefit us, the laws that we understand, and we will reject those laws that we don't like, that don't benefit us, that we don't understand. And when God's requirements come into conflict with the culture, if God's people haven't established this pattern of obedience to all of God's commands in every rhythm of life, if obedience hasn't become spiritual muscle memory for us, then, then what's going to happen? It'll be so easy for you and for me to bow to our own desires or to bow to the mandates of our culture and not obey God. And so as we delve into this long section of the law, and it's a long section, 15, hey, look, it's taken us 48 sermons to get this far. How long do you think it's going to take us to get through 15 chapters of the law? Anyway, before we start that, we need to uh, lay a foundation upon which we can build. Now, let me tell you, the foundation tour, the foundation tour has never sold out for the historic Charleston Foundation or the Preservation Society. Oh, that's right. They've never offered one. I've been docent of this building for eight years when it's on tour. And people come and, and they come through and they admire the portico. And they admire the beautiful pillars. And they come in here and they look at the 1884 organ. Oh, it's beautiful. And they look at the chandelier. Look at that beautiful chandelier. And they look at this pulpit that's made from wood, from the Black Forest in Germany. Did you know that? It's beautiful. They look at the stained glass windows and and they're awed by it. But 100%, 100% of the hundreds of people who have come on tour of this building have never once interrupted me and asked or asked at the end of the tour, excuse me. When do we get the tour of the foundation? Nobody wants to see the foundation. But without the foundation, this 180-year-old building wouldn't be standing today. So, all that to say, we got to lay a foundation this morning as we begin this long discussion of the law of God. Because what's going on in the Old Testament, book by book, chapter by chapter, it's pointing step by step to the New Testament, to Christ himself. So let's start to lay this foundation. So about the Westminster Confession. Now you know you're in trouble. If I start quoting the West, what's wrong with y'all today? You're awake? I'm trying to be funny. <laughs> if you love the Westminster Confession that much, I shouldn't uh, make fun. Anyway, the Westminster Confession says this. It uses this term for the people of Israel, those that are right now uh, gathered on the plains of Moab and listening to Moses. It, it describes them as the church under age. The church under age. So these people are the the church, but they're not fully grown. They're not yet fully developed. That's not going to happen until Christ comes. And so the purpose of of the law of God that we're going to read in these next 15 chapters, God is going to use it to grow his people up. He's going to use the law to develop his people and to lead his people to Christ. Because Christ, showing you your need for him, sending you running to him, that's the purpose of and the end goal of the law. God gave his law to his people to order their lives. The judicial law would would govern them socially and politically 
It would ensure that Israel was a fair and just nation where mercy and justice were embraced and where evil was restrained. That's the purpose of the judicial law. The ceremonial law would cover their, their worship life. It would tell them how it is they are to approach God, how they should worship Him rightly. And the beauty of the temple, the materials from which it was made, the scale of it, the decorations, the furnishings, all pointing to the beauty and the glory of the coming Christ. The moral law, most clearly expressed through the Ten Commandments, through that God would reveal to His people a knowledge of sin. This is what sin is. Through the law, God's people could name it and own it. And it's an awareness of and an understanding of sin that leads us to Christ. So God's law ordered their lives. God's law did not give life. It ordered life. It did not give life. That was not its purpose. Turn with me, if you will, to Deuteronomy 31. You're in chapter 12 now. Flip over to chapter 31. This is very near the end for Moses. He's almost finished. He's finished giving the law. Chapter 32, Moses is going to sing a song. Chapter 33, Moses is going to bestow these blessings on his people. And then chapter 34 is going to record his death. So this is the end. Now look in verse 24 of chapter 31. After Moses finished writing in a book the words of this law from beginning to end, he gave this command to the Levites who carried the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord. Take this book of the law and place it beside the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord your God. There it will remain as a witness against you. For I know how rebellious and stiff-necked you are. If you have been rebellious against the Lord while I am still alive and with you, How much more will you rebel after I die? Now verse 29, For I know that after my death you are sure to become utterly corrupt and to turn from the way I have commanded you. Well, that's not very encouraging, is it? But neither Moses nor God are going to be surprised by the lack of obedience on the part of his people. They're not going to be surprised by blatant disobedience. But listen, God never intended... That life would come to his people through obedience to his word. God never intended that. Paul writes this in Galatians 3, verse 21. For if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. But it couldn't. The blessing of life would always come to God's people through faith. Paul goes on to explain the purpose of the law. Why then was the law given? It was given alongside the promise to show people their sins. But the law was designed to last only until the coming of the child who was promised. So then, the law was our guardian until Christ came, in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian, for in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. I'll read that again. I love the New Living Translation. Let me put it another way. The law was our guardian until Christ came. It protected us until we could be made right with God through faith. And now that the way of faith has come, we no longer need the law as our guardian, for you are all children of God through faith in Jesus Christ. Life comes to us. Life comes to all through faith 
in Jesus Christ. Looking forward to him in the Old Testament, the coming Messiah. And now we look back at his accomplished life and death and resurrection. So the laws that stretch out before us in these next 15 chapters, the laws that were first written and recorded for us in Exodus chapter 20, they're not to give life, but they are to order life and lead us down the path to Jesus. And that's why obeying the law is so vitally important, because we follow it right to its end, and who do we discover standing there? The Lord Jesus himself. Certainly a whirlwind view of the law, but I hope it's enough to serve as a foundation. Now, this is what you need to do. You need to shift around a little bit, take out your mint and and do the paper now. You've been waiting not to make the noise, you know, for the little candy wrapper, whatever. Wiggle around a little bit, because we have a long way to go. I'm just doing this for your benefit. Wiggle, wiggle. All right, now, long enough. Let's get back to the passage that we have before us this morning. Moses had to establish the importance of the law. I need to establish the importance of obeying the law. Because the very first one that we encounter is extreme to the extreme. And if you and I don't get this one, if we don't get this one right, we don't even need to bother with trying to get the rest of them right. So it's not only the most important one to obey, but in many ways it's the most difficult one. So let's come back to chapter 12 and look at these first couple of verses again. Moses says, These are decrees and laws you must be careful to follow in the land the Lord is giving you. Verse 2, Destroy completely all the places on the high mountains and on the hills and under every spreading tree where the nations you are dispossessing worship their gods. Break down their altars, smash their sacred stones, burn their Asherah poles in the fire, cut down the idols of their gods, wipe out their names from those places. You must not worship the Lord your God in their way. But you are to seek the place the Lord your God will choose from among all your tribes to put his name there for his dwelling. To that place you must go. All right. This is another way of stating commandment number one, the first one. God gave Moses. God says, I, I, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. No other gods before God. You've got to get that straight. First and foremost, how will God's people accomplish that? Well, verse 2, destroy, break down, smash, burn, cut down, wipe out. Destroy, break down, smash, burn, cut down, wipe out. The law of God, the command of God, very emphatic. And so is his choice. Verse 4, you must not worship the Lord your God in their way. This is all about God's choice. Verse 5, seek the place God will choose. Look in verse 11. Then to the place that the Lord your God will choose. There you bring an offering. Verse 13, offer then only at the place the Lord will choose. It's God's choice. Now maybe you see why I wanted to have this overview of the law and its purpose. Because there is one God, one place, one way, His way. Right? One God, one place, one way, God's way. It would be so nice if we could check off five or ten or fifteen of these laws off the bat that were kind of easy to follow. You know, not going to cause much conflict in our life. Not going to cause any conflict with our culture. All those were easy, but no. 
that's not what God has for us. Number one, right off the bat, we found the command that comes most directly in conflict with our culture. Now you're getting nervous. What am I going to say? Am I going to pound the pulpit? You're wishing you hadn't brought your friend with you this morning? You're glad your friend didn't show up? Because Craig's going to get extreme. God speaks clearly. The multiple gods of every other nation currently living in the promised land are wrong gods. The multiple, multiple ways of worship of every other nation in the promised land are wrong ways to worship. God says so. The command here to destroy them and the act of destroy, destroying them symbolizes the complete rejection of them as having any value. It's the complete rejection of any notion that life or blessing or help or hope can come from any of these idols. They are completely ineffective to produce or to provide any of those things. Only God can do that. This passage is a clear value judgment. The very act that we are conditioned never to do particularly if you're about 30 years old or younger. Raise your hand if you're around 30 or younger. That's young enough to admit your age. Okay? Over half of you. If you're 30 years old, you were born in 1985, which means you started first grade in 1991. In 1991, the term political correctness appeared in an article referring to the U.S. US academic policies that sought to increase multiculturalism through affirmative action, through preventing hate speech, and through changing the content of university curriculum. And you and I know that to make a value statement of any kind is termed as hate speech. The goal of the politically correct speech is to be value-free or value-neutral toward everyone. Everyone except those who are not politically correct. But that's why we've just come through the winter break. We can never say Christmas holiday anymore. It's winter break. So everything to us is to be tolerated and nothing is to be judged. The concern of political correctness is toleration. Sociologic differences among people, race, gender, physical, mental disabilities, ethnic groups, sexual orientation, religious background, any ideological worldview, it's all to be tolerated. Peter Hitchens, he's the younger brother of Christopher Hitchens. Have you heard of him? 2007, he wrote that book, the bestseller, God is Not Great, How Religion Poisons Everything. And in the third week after its publication, that book went to number one, number one on the New York Times bestseller list. Well, Peter, like his famous brother Christopher, was an atheist. But then Peter came to faith in Christ. Peter, too, is famous in his own right, author of many books, uh, and he's a journalist. He writes a weekly column for Britain's The, The Mail on Sunday. He wrote a book called The Abolition of Britain. And in that book, he wrote this. What Americans describe with the casual phrase, political correctness, is the most intolerant system of thought to dominate the British Isles. Political correctness dominating England. Peter also said, people like me, 
though we are still allowed to speak, are allowed on mainstream national broadcasting only under strict conditions. That we are balanced by at least three other people who disagree with us so that our views actually held by millions are made to look like an eccentric minority opinion. See, my point in all of this is to say that most of you have never lived in a world, you've never experienced a culture that isn't pluralistic and politically correct. The rest of us have been conditioned by it so long we can hardly remember what it used to be like. Our tolerant culture will not tolerate not being tolerated. It, it won't. And yet that's the very thing that our God calls us to do. Do not tolerate this in the land I am giving to you. So what are you and I supposed to do in 2015 in a politically correct culture with a command like this? My first suggestion is this. We go back to Deuteronomy 11, verse 26, and hear God's truth. I'm setting before you a blessing and a curse, a blessing if you obey, a curse if you disobey. And then we have to realize that what really is at issue here is authority. You know, whose authority are you going to obey? God's authority or will you be your own authority? Are you going to let God tell you what to do? Or are we going to let our culture tell us what to do? That's far easier. Is God going to be our authority or the intelligentsia you know, who believe that their thoughts should shape our world politically and socially? But if you answer yes, it's God, 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 He is the one that I want to be my authority. Well, who is God? You know, for years I watched my kids play these video games. And before you play the game, you have to choose a character. Have you seen those games? You get to choose the sex of the character, boy or girl. You get to choose the body shape, the hair color, the eye color, the clothes, glasses, no glasses. Whatever you want, you can choose that image that will represent you. We don't get to do that with God. We would like to pick and choose how we would like to describe and develop God. Not our option. I don't know who said this next quote. I tried to find out. It's been credited to, to Voltaire, famous French philosopher. It's been credited to, to Rousseau. But here's the quote. If God has made us in his image, we have returned him the favor. A similar quote's been credited to Mark Twain. In the beginning, God made man in his image, and man has been returning the favor ever since. And it really doesn't matter who said it because it's true. It's true in the 18th century with Voltaire, the 19th century with Twain, the 20th century with us today in our culture. We want to make God in our own image. We want him to be who we want him to be. But God will never grant us that want. He won't. And so if you and I love God, we must love him as he is. How he has made himself known to us. And this, through his law, is how he makes himself known to us. You can't separate God's law from who God is, because God's law is a reflection of his heart and his mind. And so if we aren't loving God as he reveals himself to be, then we're not loving God. And if you and I think we do anyone a favor by our tolerance, and if we think we're doing them any favors by letting them think it's okay to create God in their own image, 
We're wrong. God says so. I don't know how to put a spin on this to make it palatable or hip or cool for you trendy young people who live in this PC culture. I can't. Because God is powerfully direct here. And if we think we're more loving than God by allowing others their idols, we're wrong. God, the omniscient God who knows all things, He loves people well enough to tell them the truth. And the truth is this. Life is here with me and in me. Death is everywhere else. That's the truth. Life is here in me and with me. Death is everywhere else. How could we love others and withhold that information from them? Our own lives. We tolerate idols. We polish those idols. This is where I find my acceptance. This is where I find my security and in this possession, in this bank account. This is where I find my hope, my peace. This is going to replace God for all those things in my life. Oh, really? No, not, not really. But it's, I'll just let this idol dwell in me with God. No. The idols cannot coexist in our lives with God. So what kind of game, you know, are, are we playing? We'll keep our little idols on the side. No one will think anything about it. Everything will be okay. No, it won't be. One God, one place, one way, His way. How gracious it is of God to keep His people away from what cannot help them but can only hurt them. Why should God not do this? If you were sick and I stood by and watched you pop a placebo into your mouth instead of medication that could really help you. And even if you said, oh, the placebo tastes so much better. And I said, oh, Okay, then. If it tastes better, go with the placebo. Whatever you want. What kind of person, what kind of friend, what kind of love would that be? I pray that we could all get to the point in our lives that we think such good things about God and that we trust God so much that when He and His sovereignty speaks to us, When God in His sovereignty doesn't allow us something that we really want, that we would say, you know, thank you, Lord. Thank you. You and your sovereignty have kept me from something that would destroy my life. This law, one God, one way, prepares us for Jesus, who says what? I am the way, the truth, and what? The life. That's what He says. The Apostle Peter proclaims in Acts 4.12, Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. No other name. Peter also preached in Acts 2.21, Everyone, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And so this one way, God's way, is open to all who will believe through faith in Christ. Look, it's not an exclusive offer. It's an offensive offer for sure. You can't do it your way. You have to do it God's way. But God's way is open to you. It took great courage for Peter to stand up on that day and preach what he did with his enemies. 
his cultural enemies and his religious enemies right there in his presence. And when those cultural enemies and those religious enemies saw Peter and heard what he said, it says they saw the courage of Peter and John and realized that these men were unschooled. They were ordinary men, but they were astonished. And they took note that these men had been with Jesus. And since they could see that the man who was healed was right there before them, there was nothing more they could say. And so after further threats, the enemies of Peter and John, they let them go. Because they could not decide how to punish them because all the people were praising God for what had happened. And I pray that the Spirit of God would give each of us that kind of boldness. Really. That we wouldn't be afraid. We wouldn't be afraid of what our culture calls us. The labels they hang on us. That we wouldn't be afraid, oh, our culture, my job, my school, they'll sideline me. For believing such things. And I pray that our boldness would astonish them. Like the boldness of Peter astonished everyone who was listening to him. And I pray that our boldness would have the aroma of Christ about it. And I pray that our boldness and our bold obedience to the truth, one God, one way, would result in many people praising God. We show the boldness. We trust that result with the Lord. I'll finish with this. Ed West wrote this of Peter Hitchens, a man we were talking about earlier, in the Daily Telegraph. I'm a great admirer of Peter, a decent, kind, and deeply compassionate man with the air of a prophet about him. And like all prophets, doomed to be scorned by so many. I think a lot of people affect to despise his archaic value system while suspecting that there's something in it and would say so if only more influential people would stick their head above the parapet. You and I, we need to stick our heads above the parapet and in bold obedience to our culture and every rhythm of it proclaim one God one way, through faith in Christ. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we confess, or at least I confess, being conditioned to wish verses like these weren't in Scripture because they're so difficult. They're difficult to live in obedience to. Because our culture at every turn is saying, don't, you, you, you must, you may not, you must not say such things. You must not make such value judgments. You must not tell anyone that their way is the wrong way. Or change our thinking in this matter and help us to see that these are words of grace. You love us. You love people enough to tell us the truth. You know where life is, and you want us to get to that life. So you tell us how to get there. So I pray for the boldness to believe you, that this is true, one God, one way, through faith in Christ, and that we would be bold proclaimers of that truth, and that we would boldly live by that truth. 
as you have so boldly proclaimed it to us. So we pray again that you would do in us and through us what we cannot do for ourselves. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.